We're getting close. Diane, grab what you need. And every week, we'd have not only the new weeks that we're doing here. This is Mark. Uh, Tim's got some more. But there's this uh, accordion folder job thing, and it's got all of them that we've done so far. So you can come up anytime you like, grab them. They're all here. Add to the collection. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate you. All right, so here's the deal. What we've been doing for months and months is walking through each book of the New Testament, not so that you don't have to read it, but so that when you do read it, you'll just kind of have an assist to understand the kind of the main ideas. My suggestion to you, and you can start this anytime. You can start this today. My suggestion to you is that if you wanted to read the entire New Testament, typically, you know, the New Testament's about 250 pages, which means if you read 10 pages a day, you can be done in 25 days. If that's too steep, you could do five pages a day, and it would take you 50 days, less than two months, at a pretty modest pace. You could read through the whole New Testament, but I don't recommend that you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans in that order, because then you got all the Gospels all at once. They'll start to feel redundant, and you'll zone out. So I'd recommend you do it like this. You read Luke, then Acts, then Romans. You read a Gospel, then you read Acts, because it gives you like the history of the church, and Acts is the sequel to Luke. And then you read Romans. And that little set right there of Luke, Acts, Romans gives you like this fantastic foundation. The story of Jesus, how the church experienced this as things began, and the the most foundational theological document ever written. Luke, Acts, Romans. Then read whatever you want. Just read a couple of letters. Read a handful of letters. Paul's letters, John's letters, Peter's, whatever you want. And then when you've forgotten Matthew a little bit, go back. Or when you've forgotten Luke a little bit, go back and read either Matthew, Mark, or John. And then read, you know, five or six letters. Then read another gospel, five or six letters. Final gospel. And then just do this. I would save Hebrews and Revelation for the very end. Because they're the weirdest, the hardest, the most complex. So Luke, Acts, Romans. And then intersperse gospels and letters. And then end with Hebrews and Revelation. That's my suggestion to you. And that's basically what we're doing here in this class. We kind of have followed that general pattern. And today we're in our fourth and final gospel which is going to be the Gospel of Mark. Although usually we, when I say the, I mean our fourth gospel. The last one we're doing is Mark. Usually we'll, we'll call John's gospel the fourth gospel. But we're looking at the final one for us, and then we have a handful of letters, and then we're going to do Hebrews and Revelation, and we'll be done, I think, March, I think. Maybe, maybe early April we'll be done. And I don't know what we'll do after that, but something fun. So we're going to start here looking at the Gospel of Mark, and I've got to warn you two things. One, I taught on Mark in this class about like five years ago. And this is that document. It's not exactly formatted like the other ones were. In fact, when I looked at this after I printed it, I was like, oh, I probably should have cleaned this up. But I didn't. So here it is. Okay, so it doesn't kind of, it's a little janky relative to the rest of the ones that we've done, but the content's pretty good. I just would have formatted it a little bit differently. So Mark's gospel, and let's talk about it. What do you guys know about Mark? And we'll start with this. We're going to talk about what do you know about Mark, the gospel, his letter, or his, his, his biography of Jesus. But first, what do you know about Mark, the man? You got anything? Kind of open the bidding on Mark. Who is this guy? What do we know? Say it again. John Mark. Okay, why do you distinguish that? John Mark. That is what it says in the Bible, right? So Mark is John Mark. Um, there's a lot of Johns in the, in the Bible. It can get, things can get a little bit confusing. And so Mark is John Mark. Sometimes we clarify that name. What do you guys know about him? You got any kind of sense of who he was or what he did? Robin? Yes. 
That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So what Robin is saying is he went on an early missionary journey with Paul, but he, he biffed it. He actually deserted them. He, 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 he kind of wussed out and he didn't finish the job. And Paul didn't like Mark at that point. Well, not that he didn't like him. He didn't trust him. He didn't want to bring him along. But Barnabas, who was, think about it, Barnabas was the one guy that was willing to kind of engage with Paul when nobody else would touch Paul. That's just kind of who he was. His nickname was Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He's just a super nice guy. And so the son of encouragement was kind to Paul. And then when Mark screwed up, he was kind to Mark. But Paul wasn't having it. He's like, man, there's too much at stake, and we're not going to bring him along. And so they had a really short, in fact, if you go to your, the back page, you can see this kind of, I've got the scripture on this. You can, you can watch this happen. In Acts 12, he was a missionary companion of Paul and Barnabas. 1225, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned to Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. But he screws up. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as a helper. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is all in Acts 13, and then in chapter 15, you get a little more commentary on it. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. He didn't, Paul was like, I don't, we don't trust this guy. But by the time you get a little more time passes, he gets restored, and Paul's trust in him is restored, which is why Paul's going to say in Colossians 4, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instruction about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. And then he says that, they, that he's proved a comfort to him. And he, he commends Mark a handful of times. So there was a rift early on because Mark blew it. Paul had a hard time with it. Barnabas stayed with him, encouraged him, and he finishes, finishes well. Right? So it's going to end well, but he biffed it like, we all, like a lot of us do. It's like Peter screws it up. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we mess things up. So Mark kind of been through that, comes back in, and gets restored. All right? So that's a little bit of his story, the guy that write, is going to end up writing this book. All right? Anything else you know about Mark? You add into it? Kelly Sue? That's exactly right. So what Kelly's saying is that Mark is very closely associated with Peter. He was, he was kind of like what Luke is to Paul. Luke is in some sense Paul's companion, Paul's almost biographer a little bit if you read the book of Acts. That's what Mark was to Peter. Mark was a companion of Peter. Mark was a disciple of Peter. Peter calls Mark his son. And he ends up, the gospel that he writes is is the gospel of Peter, okay? So Mark was not one of the 12. He was not running around with Peter, I mean, running around with Peter during those three years with Jesus. Matthew was there. John was there. Luke was not there. Mark was not there. But what Mark is doing is he's writing down Peter's gospel, okay? Now, this could be some, this would be something that if you read Mark's gospel, that wouldn't be obvious to you. He doesn't say, my name's Mark, but I'm writing down Peter's thoughts, okay? You don't, you don't get that. And so the question is, how, do we, how does Kelly know that? Like, why does anybody know that? And do you know how we know stuff like that? When we, we make all, sometimes people just make these assertions about what was happening. Do you know why we know it? Scott? Um, my study Bible also says that it's um, just prior to the fall of 
Yes. Yeah, we generally believe that Mark is the earliest. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke were definitely written before John. We think it was early. But how does your study Bible, like, where does, what's our source? For, are we just making stuff up? How do, we, how do we get there? Yeah, Harry? Associated with Rome, you understood the persecution of the Christian church and the Romans under Nero's uh, direction or guidance. That's where his writings actually come from. We have associated knowledge of what went on during that time and how we focused. Okay, so there's two things here I want to kind of pull out. So when we look at these texts, when we look at Mark, we look at any of the, any of the New Testament writings, we're going to draw stuff from internal to them. We're going to read things, and we'll notice things like, man, none of them say anything about Jerusalem being destroyed, which happened in 70 AD. And it would be a little bit like, you know, if you're writing a history of Hawaii and you don't mention Pearl Harbor... Then we're like, okay, this happened like in the, this must have been written before the 40s because you would have mentioned this. It was such a big, big deal. Okay. So there's things internal to the documents that are present or that are absent that, that we notice. But there is also other reports that are not Bible, but that are early. So we have the early, what we call the church fathers, these early writers. They're not part of the scriptures, but they are the first generation. So these are the guys that lived in like the 100s. And we have what they wrote. So I actually have a couple of excerpts here. If you look on the back of this thing on the right side, Listen to this. Um, let's see. How do I, where do I want to do this? This is from Fox's Book of Martyrs. It says, John Mark is supposed to have been converted to Christianity by Peter, whom he served as an amanuensis. That's like a, a scribe, a secretary. And under whose inspection he wrote his gospel in the Greek language. Or this here. This is from Asubius. This is early, early stuff. John the Presbyter also said this. Now we're quoting John the Elder, John John, the beloved disciple, John the Presbyter said this, Mark, okay, let me clarify this. John didn't say this in his gospel. He didn't say this in 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. He didn't say this in Revelation. But somebody else, a contemporary of John, said that John said this, okay? Uh, Mark, being the interpreter of Peter, whatsoever he recorded, he wrote with great accuracy, but not, however, in the order in which it was spoken or done by the Lord. For he, this is Mark, neither heard nor followed our Lord, but as before said, he was in company with Peter, who gave him such instruction as was necessary, but not to give a history of our Lord's discourses. We'll come back to that. Discourses, it's meaningful. We'll come to that in a second. Wherefore, Mark has not erred in anything by writing some things as he has recorded them, for he was carefully attentive to one thing, not to pass by anything what he heard or to state anything falsely in these accounts. This is early, early, early record of where does Mark come from. So we have very strong reason to believe that Mark really is the, the reflections of Peter, what he directly experienced, just like Luke carefully inspects everything that's, been, that's happened but wasn't there himself. Mark, Matthew and John were. Mark reflects Peter who was there, and then Luke reflects many who were there. That's kind of what we end up with Mark's gospel. Okay? Now, having said that, it has a bunch of... Well, anything else you want to say about Mark the man before we take a look at it, what he wrote? Any other notes that you got to throw into the pot? We're good? Okay. Now let's take a look at what did he write, okay? And I'll, I'll let you guys go first. What do you know, any, anything you know about Mark's gospel? What makes it peculiar? How does it stand out among the other three or four accounts? Chris? Focus on humility, servitude, and self-denial. Okay, very good. Focus on humility, servitude. That's a really strong word in self-denial. You might recall, we can, we can kind of do this little four-point grid of how each one of the Gospels 
is giving us a particular facet of Christ's life. Do you guys remember this? So in Matthew's gospel, how was Christ chiefly portrayed? Do you remember what, how we see him? He is king. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is king. So we have more language of his coronation. We have, um, oh, there's all kinds of, well, I won't do Matthew right now, but Matthew shows Christ as king. Um, what, is, what is Luke's portrait of Christ? Human. Remember any of the clues for that? Son of man language, the, the genealogy traces back to Adam as opposed to Matthew, which traces back to, back through the kings and back to Abraham. It, Luke makes it a point that he's a descendant of Adam. Um, what is John's vision of Christ? God. He is God. Any clue for that? <coughs> I am statements, huge. Yeah, absolutely. It's a major theme throughout John's gospel. And so we've got king and man. We have God and what's the final thing? Servant. In Matthew, I mean in Mark's gospel, Jesus is portrayed as servant. Now again, there's a whole bunch of clues inside the text that leads us to that conclusion. So what are some of the things that makes Mark's gospel a stronger focus on Christ as servant than as king or God or man? Not that not that he's denying any of the other three. What are the what are the clues of service in this book? You remember? There's, there was a... Cl- Wait, say it a little bit louder. Um, yeah, it's funny. So the, the washing of Jesus, Jesus washing the disciples' feet is a peculiar thing in John's gospel. So John avoids the uh, communion meal. He doesn't have, there's no breaking of bread at the, at the last supper. That's where you get that. So the, all the foot washing, that's there. That's a really good question. You would th- that makes sense, but that's actually something that shows up in John. Now, I'll, I'll give you a clue here. Something that we read of this like ancient text. Listen to this. What is the significance of this? It says, uh, blah, blah, blah that Peter's purpose in writing through Mark was not to give a history of our Lord's discourses. How is that consistent with his portrait of Christ as servant? I want you to think about that. Dis- what does discourse mean? Teaching. His teachings, his words. So Matthew gives us lots of Jesus' words. You get the Sermon on the Mount. You get lots of verbal, there's a lot of red letters in Matthew and Luke and in John, but you do not get long discourses in Mark's gospel. Because servants are meant to be seen and not heard, right? Just do things. So Mark is going to portray Christ doing stuff much more than giving speeches, right? Because it's not really, I mean, he speaks. There are red letters in Mark. But it's not these long sermons that you get in Matthew. Long sermons you get. I mean, you get tons of long stretches of pure red ink in Matthew and Luke and in John. You don't find that in Mark. He's doing things, okay? That's one. You guys know, I can do, I can give you the whole list. But anybody remember any? Catherine? Mark is servant, or Jesus is servant, in eh, Mark? Healing. Healing. Well, he's going to do that everywhere. That's true. Um, but and that's right. So healing. So, so what you're going to say is in the absence of his teaching, long parables and stuff, you're going, to have, you're going to have him doing things, more healing. There's a funny little detail that you wouldn't notice. I never would have noticed it if, I didn't, if somebody didn't point it out to me. But Matthew, Mark likes to talk about Jesus' hands. I even collected this. Look at how much. Go inside here. Um, the servant's work is shown, uh, let's see, where did I put it? Da, da, da. The hand, I'm sorry, it's on the very front. The hands of the servant. So it just likes to point out, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. He took her by the hand. He took the blind man by the hand. He put his hands on him. He put his hands on his eyes. 
Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him, put his fingers in his ears. Um, at the very end in chapter 6, how are such mighty works done by his hand? Okay, That's a significant factor because he's just doing. He's not talking. He's doing stuff. He's touching stuff. He's got calloused hands. Not only that, and it's right here next to that. Um, remember last week we looked at Titus? And what is the title differential in Titus that's so weird? What's the weird thing about Paul's, the title he ascribes to Christ? Savior, 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 and never, ever, ever Lord. Very similar in Mark's gospel. Look at the bottom here, the bottom of the front cover. In Matthew and Lord, Matthew and Luke, Jesus is directly called Lord 70 to 80 times. In Mark, it happens twice. Isn't that interesting? And even that, once of them is in a way that is simply the way of calling somebody Sir, right? And then the final one is as he's about to ascend to his throne finally here in chapter 16 at the very end. After the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So the focus is on him as the servant who serves, not as the Lord who rules, not as the teacher who teaches. He is doing things. It's a conspicuous. It's one of those things that as you read through, just look for what you don't notice, right? What's not really there. It's a very much a lowly book, okay? Uh, what else? Other things you remember are distinctive about Mark's gospel? Yeah, Lily? This is a little more personality or stylistic, but he's so very to the point that even my son noticed. When we had read through Matthew, we got to Mark and was like, what is this? It's terse. It's quick. It's concise. Clips, 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 clips. Absolutely the case. Now, there's an irony to this, however, okay? So Mark's accounts of things tend to be briefer. They tend to be more concise. So if you, how many of you like, like just efficiency? Are you guys like, some of you are like on the super bottom line this for me kind of thing. Others of you are just babbling on loquaciously, okay? So Mark is on the tight. He's concise. But here's the irony of this. Mark's gospel, even though it's tight, it's pithy, doesn't have a lot of time to waste, he fills it with details that Matthew and Luke do not include. And those are more evidence that this is Peter's memories. Look at this. I, I highlighted this. If you just go through, you can find all of these things. Go open, it, open this thing up. The servant's work is shown with numerous vivid de details unique to Mark. If you go through his gospel, you're going to find all of these things happen in the other synoptics. Now, do you guys remember that? Let me, let me, when I keep saying Matthew and Luke, um, we divide the gospels very clearly into three and one unmistakably. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to have a sense that these are similar, similar, similar. And then when you read to John, it's like a completely different genre. It's totally different. The three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptics, S-Y-N. It's the same optics. They look the same. They see from the same vantage point. There's an enormous amount of overlap. John is totally independent of, of the way these things function, okay? But even within those synoptics, when we're in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot of overlapping stories, a lot of overstapping, over, overlapping language, but all of these things show up in Mark. The things that are in bold are only in Mark. So the whole town gathered at the door. Peter remembers it was at the door. A few days later when he had entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Blah, 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 not even outside the door. All of those bold lines, they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. The grass was green. They were straining at the oars. He was about to pass by them. He carried the sick on mats. Um, some of them have come a long distance. These are all personal remembrances. Matthew doesn't include them. Luke doesn't include them. 
But Peter's like, oh yeah, but that's what happened. Which is one of the things that gives us more evidence of the, the personal remembrance of this. So he's in a hurry, but he does not exclude the details that were significant to him. The things that made it vivid and memorable. Just like, you know, you walk into a room and you smell something. And that smell is like transportive to a memory. And you're there. That's what's happening for Peter as he walks through these things. He can see it all happening in his mind's eye. And that's what Mark is writing down. Okay, so brief, quick, absolutely, but not devoid of detail. Daniel. Mark's gospel, by percentage, has the most supernatural stuff going on. I did not know that. Oh, because he cut. the discourses are eliminated. But if you go through Mark and just highlight the supernatural stuff, it's an immense percentage. Fascinating. Okay, that's really interesting. And I bet you're right. So he's kind of, because he's trimmed out all the discourses, which by their nature aren't supernatural, right? It's going to be more condensed into that. That's really interesting. And, okay, so here's what it's, it's the shortest gospel. It's only 16 chapters long. What is Matthew's 28, Mark's 16, Luke is 21, and what did I skip? Oh, John is 21, Luke is 24, right? And so it's tight. It's quick. And in that, he's really going to pack a whole bunch of stuff in for sure. Catherine? Yes. And that's the first thing you have here. And that just opens up all kinds of yep. response. Yeah, and that's, again, one of these details that Peter was aware of, but that others didn't either didn't know or didn't, didn't think to mention, for sure, when Jesus goes into the wilderness. Gil? Uh, Mark's the only one that starts writing John's, uh, John the Baptist, because Matthew has the genealogy, and then John... Yes. That's right. Okay, and this is great, Gil. And so Gil is saying that, that Mark's gospel just jumps right in and, and, and hits the ground running. It doesn't, he doesn't waste any time on the genealogy. Kings need genealogies. But who cares who your servant's great-great-great-great-grandfather was? It's not pertinent to the point, right? And so he just kind of hits the ground and he runs. And by the way, he runs the whole way. What is Mark's favorite word? Have you guys seen, have you noticed, I wonder if immediately, just look at it, I listed a bunch of them here. Immediately, everything happens immediately. Go to that right page in the center. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and immediately they left their nets and immediately he called them. He went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, immediately there was a synagogue with a man. At once his fame spread everywhere. Immediately, I mean, it's just like, take a breath, right? Everything is a huge rush, and what is he in a rush to get to? Do you know? Ultimately to the crucifixion, right? All of the Gospels do this. Like there's basically, you can divide any one of the Gospels. There's like Jesus' life and all these really wonderful, important things that he said. All these really wonderful and important things that he did, more or less. But there's a little bit of a blah, blah, blah. And then we, then we got to it. Then the cross came. Then it happened. And there's always a hinge. There's this moment in Luke 19. The whole story is leading up to Luke 19. Or, or Luke, Luke 9, excuse me, Luke 9. And in Luke 9, 51, Jesus sets his face like flint for Jerusalem. And for the rest of the book, we're driving to the cross. This happens consistently in these books. In Matthew, it happens at the very end. Look at it. In the, go back to the front page of this. I know we're bouncing all over the kingdom. The very end of chapter 8. This is that hinge. So Mark is in a great big hurry to get to the cross. 
everything's immediate. Everything's like, yeah, this happened, and then we do this, and then we do this, and then we do this. And right here is this moment, this pivot. Take a look at it. The central message, right, of this whole book is found in the midpoint where Jesus affirms that he is the Christ. And watch it. This is where Jesus asked the question, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then immediately, from this point on, and it never lets up, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. And on that right column, you can see how often. That's chapter 8. In chapter 9, he says the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. In chapter 9, he'll be betrayed. They will kill him. In chapter 10, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. Again in chapter 10, can you drink the cup I drink? That is the cross. Chapter 10, he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. In chapter 12, he tells a story that they want to kill him, to kill the heir. Chapter 14, his burial is coming. In 14, he will be betrayed. In 14, this is my body that is broken for you. And Mark is interested in things that he says. He's interested in things that he does. But he's far and away most interested in the cross. And everything is a race to finally get there. Dan? Um, I was noticing in the parables that sometimes when Jesus heals, he says, go and tell no one. Yep. Then in other parables, he'll say, go tell everyone. Yeah. So how does he choose who he wants? You know, is it the crowd that determines yeah. whether he wants a crowd around him? Or is it that he just knows the character of each person? Yeah. So Diane is asking, what's the deal? Well, sometimes Jesus seems like to want to do everything in secret, and then sometimes he wants you know, to be more, more public. He wants people to share, share what he's done. Generally, his bias is towards secrecy because he knows as soon as the word gets out, it's going to make it a lot harder for him. And what's so crazy is that whenever Jesus tells somebody, hey, I've healed you, just shh, don't, don't tell anybody. Just keep it to yourself. They all go tell everybody. And of course they do, right? And then when they do, it makes it difficult for him, right? We've seen it. Like there's a time where it's such an interesting juxtaposition where he heals a leper and he tells the leper, shh, don't tell anybody. And the leper who had been formerly kept in the outside places goes and he tells everyone and he's allowed back into the community. And then Jesus is no longer allowed in the community because now he's just got to like, he's got to hide because now the, the pressure is on for him. So generally, Jesus wants there not to be a lot of fanfare because he's trying to get as much good done as he can before the authorities can't stand him anymore and kill him. He's got work to do to train these guys. So his bias is towards that. There are times, it's interesting, like in Samar- when he gets in Samaria, when he's in John 4, when he's with the, the, woman in, you know, the woman at the well, he doesn't quench her desire to tell everyone. I think that one is because um, they're not in Israel. Like they're not, they're in, it's a little bit of a safer place for him. He's not likely to provoke the Pharisees because the Pharisees aren't hanging out with the Samaritans, right? So in different spheres where he can be more public, he is, but his bias is really more, much more towards secrecy. You see it pr- pretty, pretty persistently. Cool? Okay. Other hands? Yeah, Judy? I have a question. Yeah. The focus is on servanthood. Um, is that, was that Peter's focus more, do you think, or is it Mark's That's a great question. I mean, I know it's what God wants. But I'm interested is because Peter was kind of like, you're the rock and I'm going to fight. So that doesn't seem, maybe that he was, had a servanthood. Yeah. That is such an interesting question. And Judy, as I, 
off the top of my head, it's not obvious to me. I think, so Judy's question is this, this editorial choice to focus on Christ as servant. Was that Peter's idea or was that Mark's idea? Now, we always would say that Scripture has two authors, meaning there's the human being who wrote it, and then there's the Spirit of God who superintends all things. So at one level, we can say it's the Spirit's idea. This is what he's guiding, the, guiding these men to write. But this book doesn't really have two authors. It has three authors, right? And so then how do we, how do we further divide who had the, in, the motive for that? Uh, and I don't know. That's really interesting. It's true that you, wouldn't, you don't think of Peter in lowly terms. He's kind of bombastic and loud and speaks all the time and puts his foot in his mouth. So it doesn't seem like Peter in his nature, but it might be Peter as he matures. Um, and, I, and I will say, we'll get to this in a second, there are other things that are odd about this being Peter's gospel we'll come to. But is it obvious to anybody? Oh, maybe everybody's got an idea. So let's go. We'll start here. Robin, and work our way across. Absolutely true. So a little humiliation might go a long way in taking the edge off. Have you guys noticed that in your own lives? Is that, have you, are you a little less bombastic than you were when you were 20? Has that happened yet? I mean, that might be. That, that could absolutely be. Harry? I'm going to go back to the time of this. It was written, it was written on the Italian peninsula. And if it was more of a servitude-type writing, it would not inflame the authorities, the Roman authorities, as much. So it, it, I see it as a way of getting the gospel out there, but keeping it, if you will, under a certain level of uh, harassment. So maybe there's something strategic, strategic to be a little bit understated in some things. There's a, there's a place to be understated, for sure. Yeah, what do you think? Absolutely. And that was his main lesson at that point was being a servant. And so at that time, Peter said, no way, Lord, you're not my servant. I'm your servant. Don't wash my feet. That must have had a profound effect on him as well. That is a really good observation. For somebody who, Peter who, okay, so the observation is Peter was the one who didn't want Jesus to wash his feet, right? When, you know, he's like, no, don't do that. That Peter found it somehow inappropriate that Jesus king of all things would take on such a lowly position and it does make sense that Peter who sees the supremacy of Christ's leadership and fancies himself to also be a supreme leader may have been more struck by the humility of Jesus than another person a humble person might see Jesus's humility and be like yeah I mean that's how we do this but to Peter for Peter to see someone so great abase himself to such a low position it that really does make sense that that would really land in Peter's heart and maybe color the way that he frames this whole story. That's a, that's a really great observation. Okay, so these are things. I don't know. These are, these are, these are great observations. Um, here's what I would want you to see. A couple other things. We'll stay here. Um, if it's Peter's gospel, and, and it is, it'd be, it's interesting to note what doesn't show up. Take a look at the back page, that bottom right corner. Um, 
You got all these details. That's fine. We already talked about that. But Peter gets no special mention. Mark's gospel does not include the time where Peter walks on the water with Jesus out in the sea. Mark's gospel um, does not have the benediction, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Um, nor acknowledgement that the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon, the way Luke does it. Um, rather, that honorable distinction is given to Mary. So when Peter, this one who has not historically been the most humble of guys, when he writes this gospel, he includes the stuff that makes him look like an idiot, and he excludes the stuff that makes him look like he might be bragging, right? So the, the focus is on shame. Peter's denial of the Lord is most full in Mark, with the added circumstance that it was not until the second cock crew crowed that Peter suddenly called to mind the sad prediction of Jesus. Matthew and Luke say that Peter went out and wept bitterly. In Mark, it is only that he broke down and wept, lest reference to the bitterness of his tears should seem an affectation of humility. And only in Mark does the risen Christ say, go your way, tell his disciples, and tell Peter, who perhaps might be excluded from that number, since he has excluded himself from that number, that he goes before you into Galilee. So it's pretty, pretty extraordinary. It seems like this, the, this gospel in some way reflects the transforming work that happened in, in Mark's life as he met and knew and walked with this extraordinary man who was much more than a man. Final thing that I don't think we've said is just in the, in the center, in the bottom there, it reveals a servant who is astonishingly popular. That's one of the things you'll see as you go through Mark. It, it rips along, but along the way, um, you just get this sense of how the crowds were amazed by him over and over again. The crowds followed him. Peter is painting a picture of Christ. He is the lowly one. He is the servant. But my goodness, he turns the world upside down, and everybody wants to be with him. Okay? So, 16 chapters. You can blitz through it. And uh, it might, it's the kind of book that you might even choose to read it in a setting. It wouldn't take you that long to you know, hammer through Mark and to catch it, get caught up in the pace of it. Um, but I hope some of these details might be helpful to you as you go through it. Okay? Now, we're early, but we're early on purpose because I want to ask you to do something for me. Um, Church of the Holy Spirit has roughly 10 billion people. And one of the things that I've noticed uh, that's true in my life and it's true in many, many people's lives is there's really nothing sweeter than your own name. People like it when they're called by name. And I know lots and lots and lots of your names. And I don't know lots and lots and lots of your other names. And I would like to know them. So here's my request of you, if you'd be willing to do this. And if you tell me your name, be merciful. Like, there's 500 of you, and I'm not going to remember it, right? So here's what I need you to do, if you're willing. Um, you guys are excused because there's just the two of you, okay? But would you take your phone... And make a video, and, the, and the, around the circle, you're all just going to say your name within your table. I'm John, I'm Susan, I'm Bob, I'm Fred, I'm, you know, Martha. Go around the thing, and then text it to me. Would you do that? Okay? And if you're curious, you all look 